Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome back to our listeners. In this next section in the book of James, we're going to look at verses 22 to 25 in chapter 1. The title of this session is True Religion and Our Obedience to God. Remember, James calls his readers to tangible and intentional action. He wants them to not just listen and consider what he is saying. Rather, he wants them to respond. It's vital that his readers and us feel the weight of James's burden here. It's very important to James that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of change and of action. Change that brings us to a place of reconciliation to God because Christ took on the punishment of our sin on our behalf and change in that we are now walking in him in restored likeness. I've heard it said that Christ doesn't expect a lot from those who don't follow him. Rather, he expects a lot from those who do. The point here is that we can't be unresponsive as Christians, that the gospel calls us to intentional and meaningful response. We are made different and called to be different from the world. Remember that the overarching point and concern of James in his letter is that being like Christ demonstrates that we have been truly changed by Christ and responding to God in our true faith through right belief that produces right actions. For James, again, our words and actions are very important in demonstrating a genuine understanding and saving faith in our Savior. Now let's look at our next text. James chapter 1 verses 22 to 25 says, But be sure you live out the message and do not merely listen to it, and so deceive yourselves. For if someone merely listens to the message and does not live it out, he is like someone who gazes at his own face in a mirror. For he gazes at himself and then goes out and immediately forgets what sort of person he is. But the one who peers into the perfect law of liberty and fixes his attention there and does not become a forgetful listener, but one who lives it out, he will be blessed in what he does. This section is a continual building and mounting argument that James is about to break open wide in chapter 2, like we've said before, that argument of loving our neighbors. He underscores in verse 22 the imperative of living out the message that was firmly planted in those who believe from verse 21. The living message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is implanted in the one exercising the faith and trust in God as Savior. The sound logic that James uses here is pretty straightforward. That since the word, the gospel message, has been implanted in you and has saved you and is now part of you, then the only reasonable, true, sound, logical, An obvious reality is to live out that message. James encapsulates this with another effective word picture. He says that whoever claims the message of life and doesn't live it out is like a person who looks at themselves in the mirror and immediately forgets what they look like. This practical metaphor is fitting for his profound theological point. The absurdity of the metaphor is just that. It's silly. Who in fact looks at themselves and then immediately forgets what they look like? No one. 
unless this person is in fact not truly changed and they've been self-deceived. To James, new life in Christ is a new life in Christ. It's life in Christ. It's living that whoever doesn't see this obvious connection between what one believes and how one lives is simply deceived. James says, don't be, don't be deceived. Make no mistake, the deception lies in one believing that they can supernaturally be saved and not be supernaturally and fundamentally changed by the gospel. I fear that many professing Christians claim the salvation of Christ, but ignore and even in some cases resist living a life in Christ. Now, let me be clear. It's not that Christians don't ever struggle or ever have days filled with defeat and discouragement. This is a very normal and understandable conflict of the war between living like our flesh wants and walking in the Spirit of God. And as the Apostle Paul so vulnerably shares this concept in Romans chapter 7. Rather, James is speaking of the person who simply believes that accepting Christ through the gospel simply has no meaningful consequence to the remaining days that follow after. There is a profound difference between those two types of thinking. There is no other gospel other than the one that causes change in us to invoke change through us. Later, James will say in chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. This is the one true gospel, not of good works or merely sincere declaration. Rather, it's the gospel of change and response. So what is he getting at exactly as far as what he wants us to live out? I think Romans chapter 5 is a great place to start answering this question. In Romans, the Apostle Paul lays out the rationale for the gospel and the reality of God's just punishment for our sin and Christ's effective and worthy payment that allows men to have grace and forgiveness for his sin. However, the collective implication of this beautiful reality is hope, Romans 5 verse 4. And it's also reconciliation, Romans 5.10, that in our salvation, now, amidst a fallen world, we suffer toil and are tempted. But the purpose of these things is to rejoice in suffering in order to gain endurance that builds Christ-likeness and Christ-like character that allows us to continue to hope as we wait for the fulfillment of our salvation. Now, don't miss what Paul is saying. He's effectively saying that the process, the day-to-day life struggle, is a process of living out the gospel that has transformed us. That in between the lines of suffering, endurance, character building, and hope lies innumerable opportunity. These opportunities are filled with circumstances and conversations and frustrations and temptations and interactions that provide the context for our real hope to be highlighted in the contrast to these things that this hope is really our true reality. And as a result, we grow and mature in our faith, assured of our hope in Christ. And others see this. We are to live in a manner that proves that we have true hope in something greater than this world, this life, and these circumstances. Furthermore, the motivation to endure such a process is that we have been reconciled to God and made alive in Christ. In other words, he's simply worth it. What we endure now pales in comparison to what we will get later. We have peace with God, and as a result, 
We are restored in our image bearing, bringing true purpose and meaning in how we were created as God's human creatures in the first place. We are blessed with the inheritance of Christ and adopted as sons of God, Ephesians 1. A crucial question to explore in how James's audience may have seen this profound concept is an important thing to, to look into. If they were Jews, presumably adhering to Judaism and as a result, knowing and honoring their Hebrew ancestry and identity, how are they processing all of this? I might suggest we consider the Shema. The Shema is understood as the primary focal point and central command of Israel's identity in the Old Testament biblical story. It refers to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. I think understanding this concept and how Israel would have understood it is important to grasping the full meaning of our text as a whole book, specifically in terms of James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Our key connection of the Shema is James chapter 1, verse 21, as he says, Be sure to live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. How did this Jewish audience understand the intended concept and meaning of truly listening and learning the commands of God, especially the Shema? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 starts with the word hear. What does hear mean? The word used for hear in this context contains the following aspects. It means to listen with intent or interest, to obey, and also to cause to hear, to tell, and even proclaim. If hearing means listening with intention, interest and obedience, then the implication of James's point is heavy. To better understand this point, let's turn to Perry Downs in his book, Teaching for Spiritual Growth. He states the following, Obedience to the law is a constant theme in the Old Testament, illustrating that Hebrew concept of learning. Teaching and learning in the Old Testament did not involve only the communication of information, but also instruction in the will of God and understanding how to live. The teacher was to teach people to obey the commands of God, not simply to know them. In fact, knowledge was so linked to action, Perry Down says, in the Hebrew mind, that the people could not claim to know what they did not do, Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Perry Downs goes on to say in his book, learning was to be demonstrated in two ways, by the change of attitude and by a change in action. The Hebrew was to stand before this God in awe and reverence in terror and in love. Fear of the Lord was to be expressed through obedience to God's commands. A change of heart was to be expressed in a change in behavior. Only then, Perry says, could it be said that a person had learned the law of God. Learning God's law was not something divorced from life, but rather something that was to control all of life. That was from pages 24 to 25. The implication of the Hebrews' understanding of learning is profound. That for God to truly learn and understand something is to not only acknowledge it as viable and true by simply engaging a cognitive metaphysical ability, but to internalize it in their hearts and have it change their character and then be expressed in their lives and behavior. For God, it wasn't enough to simply know. Rather, they were to truly feel, believe, and then do it in the natural world. Simply put, they were to know the right thing, feel the right way, and do the right thing if they were truly to learn and obey the commands of God. As the Shema is concerned, they were to love God with all their being, 
their minds, their thoughts and logic and rationale, their hearts, feelings, emotions, and motivations, and their will, their might, and energy. The practical implication of this is that their response to God included a tangible, palpable testimony that was outwardly displayed to other nations around them. God demonstrates his love towards his people. Jesus demonstrates his love for people. We are to do the same in demonstrating the love of Christ to one another. Israel's identity as God's people was seated in the character and nature of their God. They were to embrace God and obey his commands. Their disobedience and subsequent drifting and eventual discipline from God came because they failed to be different from the surrounding nations they were supposed to be a light to. They forgot who they were as God's people and as a result acted like they weren't God's holy and blessed nation. They forgot they were a kingdom of priests. They forgot that they were to be a light to the nations and to one another who were to live out the character and nature of God through obeying his laws. In fact, they were to obey out of love for him and that the other nations would witness this love. God's desire was to be so near to his people through love and devotion that others would be attracted to and want to follow him. See Deuteronomy 4 and 6 for further inquiry. James says that the remedy for not being the kind of person who forgets what they look like as soon as they leave their reflection is that they should focus on the law of liberty. Essentially, this expression means that we have the freedom to obey God, that the law used to condemn us because we are guilty of breaking it, incurring the wrath of God as a result has been satisfied in Christ. The law no longer condemns us, that Jesus fulfills the law lifting its curse of death and condemnation and frees us in order to obey it. We obey it because it's good. We obey it because it's in line with who we are now, that we've been redeemed and transformed in Christ. We should obey God's law because it's the character and nature of him. And in Christ, we are in his likeness. We love God's law because we love him. And it's a fitting response to who he is and what he's done in our lives. You see, James says to fix our attention on this reality. This effectively means that we continually remain beside and always keep near the character and nature of God by truly hearing and knowing God through obeying his law. And really that law is ultimately the law of love that we will soon discover in the coming chapters of the book of James. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.